Let me add another welcome to the chorus of welcomes we've received this morning. Um, it's really exciting for me to be up here this morning. Um, my name is Alita Ugama, and I am not one of the pastors on staff here at St. Peter's Fireside, but I am really blessed to call this church my home. Um, I've been a member, I'm a member of the Board of Trustees, and you may recognize my name from the St. Peter's blog. Um, and I've had the honor and the joy of being a part of this church since its beginning, when we were just a group of strangers gathering in Alistair and Julia's living room, praying and dreaming about what this community could become. Had you told me then that within two years I would be standing here and preaching on a Sunday morning, I wouldn't have believed you. In fact, when Alistair first asked me to speak, I thought he was completely crazy. But there's this funny thing about following Jesus, as we'll see later in this sermon, is that sometimes it makes you do seemingly crazy things. And so here I am. I'm really excited, and I'm really nervous, and I'm feeling a bit out of my element. I'm a grad student at Trinity Western University, and most contexts where I'm standing in front of a group of people involves me speaking about international human rights issues or refugee policy. Uh, so needless to say, this is an exciting change of content and pace. But I'm also keenly aware that there is nothing that qualifies me to stand in front of you today outside of God's grace in my life and in my story. I'm young and I'm inexperienced, and there are a lot of things that I don't know. But if I know anything, I know the love of Jesus and his faithfulness in my life. And so, let's jump in. We're now in week four of our five-week series on evangelism, talking about how we talk about Jesus. We're focusing on how we talk about Jesus over the specifics of what we say when we talk about him, not because the content of what we say isn't important, but rather because the process of sharing about Jesus goes beyond simply having the right words. And our desire is that the how of how we talk about Jesus accurately represents who he is. In the past three weeks, Alistair has taken us through stories where Jesus was a direct part of the narrative. But in the remaining two weeks of this series, we are now looking at the period after Jesus' death and resurrection. We're looking at how God worked through the early church to bring the gospel into the whole world. Now, this is a really exciting time in the life of the church, but it's also a time of major transition. The disciples have gone from having Jesus himself in their midst to depending on the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and while this may seem like a difficult transition, Jesus said that it was actually to their and to our advantage that he go away. Why? Because he will fill us with his spirit. Now, it's, it's really hard to imagine there could possibly be anything better than God in the flesh. Anything in the world better than doing life and laughing and talking and sitting with Jesus himself. But there is. And that something is the reality of God in all flesh. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The spirit and presence of God made accessible to all. And so, in our passage this week, we see that the work of the Holy Spirit is crucial to sharing our faith. In fact, we can go so far as to say that the how of sharing our faith can only be the Holy Spirit. This passage is saturated in glimpses of why the Spirit's leading and preparation is the better and only option. Because the Holy Spirit both leads us to share our faith and prepares those to whom we share it with. Our text today is Acts 8, 26 through 40. 
In the first week of this series, we looked where Philip invited Nathaniel to come and see Jesus. This week, we see Philip again sharing his faith. And like the past weeks, we're simply going to walk through the passage and take in the sights along the way. So you'd open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. God speaks. That's the foundation of this passage. For Philip, obedience, action, and evangelism flowed out of a living and active relationship with the God who speaks. Now, we don't know if Philip was in a place of prayer or worship or seeking God in solitude, or if this command came in the midst of his ordinary life and everyday routine. We aren't told specifically, but what we do know is that God speaks. And wherever Philip was, God spoke directly to him. And because Philip knew God and was familiar with his voice, he was able to respond. Now, I have never heard an audible voice from God telling me to go a certain direction on a certain road. That would be fun, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, But I have felt the leading of the Spirit to go to places and people that I never would have if he hadn't directed my heart and my mind towards them. Often God speaks by giving us impressions or inclinations, like, I should call so-and-so, or that feeling like you should sit next to that person on the SkyTrain, or stop and talk with that homeless person, or invite that friend to coffee that's been in your mind for so long. Scripture doesn't give us a clear formula of how God speaks or how we can go about hearing his voice, but we know that God works both in mysterious ways and within ordinary means to reach those who don't yet know him. But we also know that to follow Jesus is to have a living and breathing relationship with him. And like any active or healthy relationship, that requires constant conversation. It requires being with Jesus. It requires taking time to seek him and to listen. So our first role as followers of Christ in talking about Jesus is actually just to make ourselves available to the Spirit's leading. And then, like Philip, to respond when he speaks. Our story continues. And there is an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Before I say anything else, can we admire the radical nature of Philip's faith here? Or maybe not. Most of us would say that it's pretty crazy to chase cars. The only time I think the phrase chasing cars makes sense is when it's a Snow Patrol song or if it's a scene in a cheesy chick flick. But if God asked you to run after someone on the seawall to talk to them, would you do it? If God asked you to do something that might make you look a little bit crazy, would you be willing to do it? Philip demonstrates the right posture of faith. He said yes to God before knowing what God would even ask. 
And then the Spirit speaks to Philip and leads him to chase a chariot. Not because God wants us to look crazy, but because God is crazy about the person in the chariot. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know his name, but I don't really want to call him the eunuch or the Ethiopian. Uh, so let's call him Horatio. <laughs> Horatio was a racial minority. He was also a wealthy man. He was a high-up official in the Ethiopian government. He would have been the equivalent of our Minister of Finance, the CFO of his nation's accounts. By all standards of success in his own country, he had arrived. But his success was not enough to satisfy his heart and his mind. He had access to wealth, but it wasn't enough, which should speak to us of the reality that the gospel knows no socioeconomic boundaries, rich or poor, Everyone needs Jesus. And so Horatio, in his dissatisfaction or his intellectual curiosity, or whatever else inspired this pilgrimage, decided to pursue meaning and truth. We don't know much about the beliefs that he held prior to this. He was likely a God-fearer, a Gentile who aligned closely with Jewish beliefs. But we do know that he was hungry for God, so hungry, in fact, that he had pursued a trip to Jerusalem all on his own. And when Philip arrives on the scene, we find that Horatio was already reading scripture. He was being prepared by God. God is working on both sides of the equation here. He put Philip and Horatio in the same place at the same time. We have a record of their single interaction, but we can see that God has already been at work in both of their lives behind the scenes to even get them to this point. I love this. I love that the Holy Spirit sets this up in such a way that neither Philip nor Horatio can take any credit for the way this unfolds. They had never met prior. Philip hadn't been meeting with, him regu with Horatio regularly to cast vision for just how beautiful Jesus is. He hadn't previously shared with the Ethiopian of the far surpassing worth of Christ. They've both been led by the Spirit. They've both been prepared by the Spirit. And it gets better still. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before a cheer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. One of the beautiful things we see here is what passage Horatio is reading. It's a prophecy about Jesus, but Horatio doesn't know that. Philip does, though, because he just watched it unfold. There's something we shouldn't overlook here, then, that God prepares Horatio with scripture, the right scripture for the right moment in time. But we have to admit, this may seem a little bit more rare in our modern context in Vancouver. But don't let that make you think that God isn't preparing people to receive him. God is always at work in people's lives, leading them towards himself. 
We simply have to be willing to enter into their lives and listen so that we can identify the places where God is already at work. Look at what Philip does. He listened first and he spoke second. He engages in dialogue rather than a pre-prepared monologue. In many ways, this passage shows us that talking about Jesus is less about a hierarchy of doctrine or a pre-packaged script and more about learning to dance with the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't dance, like not at all. Instead of graceful movement, it looks a little bit more like this. But I love dancing movies, and I love watching people who can dance because I'm so in awe of the way they can control the movement of their bodies, of how they can move to the rhythm of the music. From what I've read and what I've been told from, by my friends who are dancers is that the true art and creativity of dancing comes when you stop overthinking each movement, when you give up control and you let the music lead you. This is especially true when dancing in a pair because two individuals committed to their own control and their own way of wanting a dance to go does not result in an inspiring movement. To dance together, you have to give up control and learn to trust the other person completely. Letting the Holy Spirit lead the process of how and where and with whom we talk about Jesus is similar. When he moves left, we move left. When he moves right, we move right. When he speaks, we listen. When he leads, we follow. When he says, be still, we rest in his sufficiency. When he says, speak, we speak with confidence. And when he holds back our words, we don't force them. But not only am I a terrible dancer, I'm also a big fan of control. I used to live most of my life by the unspoken rule that I didn't do things I was bad at. It was a brilliant strategy in the sense that I could protect myself from most embarrassing situations and could, for the most part, avoid completely dreaded, awkward situations. But in my attempt to always appear competent and altogether, I was actually missing out on some really beautiful and enjoyable things, like dancing. And when I learned to stop paying attention to how horrible I am at it and just chose to enjoy it, awkwardness and all, I started to really love it. This is, for many reasons, why I have a lot of respect for Taylor Swift. <laughs> she can't dance either. Um, and, and unlike me, she's one of the most high-profile people in the world. And yet, she owns it. She launched her newest music video this past week, and it's already been watched by millions. And in this video, she essentially points, pokes fun at herself for her own inability to dance. But she does so with so much flair and so much confidence that it makes you want to dance too. Because it doesn't matter that she's not a great dancer. What matters is that she's true to herself. She's so authentic, it's inspiring. The fact that the Holy Spirit is the one that prepares hearts, the one who reveals the character of Jesus, and the one who points us to the heart of the Father means that we are free. Paul tells us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In him, we have freedom. In him, we are free to be ourselves when we speak about Jesus. We are free to be real and authentic. 
We can talk about Jesus from a place of complete dependence on the Holy Spirit and from the place of a living relationship with him. Mark Golley said it like this, we are most in line with the Spirit, most faithfully obedient, when instead of trying to manipulate people into faith, we simply live in the freedom and let the Spirit do the work of transformation. Because when the God of the universe invites us to be a part of his redemption process, he invites us in our imperfections and our impatience and within the context of our own broken and messy stories. He wants the beauty of our individual personalities, quirks and all, to shine in the way that he shows up in people's lives. And while a life of walking in step with the Spirit certainly will mean lots of moments of taking risks and moving beyond what is comfortable, God never asks us to be something that we are not. The freedom God offers in Christ is that we can be the most free and most beautiful versions of ourselves because of Christ in us. If you're introverted, you do not need to become an extroverted street preacher to talk to people about Jesus. If you are more outgoing, you don't need to become more contemplative or reserved to somehow come across as something that you're not. Just be you. Be the you who has been changed and transformed by Jesus. Because the most real and authentic encounters with Jesus become, come because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what each party brings to the table. Horatio had a question about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit brought one of Christ's own apostles to answer those questions. If that's not a Holy Spirit setup, I don't know what is. And the language of the Holy Spirit often found, finds its language in ordinary things, which means that it should inspire us to talk about him in the places that make up our ordinary lives and in the things that we enjoy. Many of the most meaningful conversations I've had, both with friends and complete strangers about Jesus, have come when I tried, stopped, I tried, stopped trying so hard to be someone or something that I wasn't. When I stopped trying to tell the story of Jesus' work in someone else's life, and I instead chose the vulnerability of my own. Authenticity and freedom are inviting. If we feel the pressure to somehow have it all together, or are paralyzed by the fear of not having the answers, we need to take a second look at the freedom we have in Christ. Because what we see here and what we discover repeatedly throughout scripture is that what God invites us into is less a checklist about things we need to be able to answer or a pre-rehearsed sales pitch about the pros and cons of following Jesus. It's not that at all. God invites us into an active relationship with Jesus where his love for us overflows organically in our words and our actions. So what we see here is an invitation to dance. The story ends with the Holy Spirit leading Philip onto the next place and with Horatio going away rejoicing. After Horatio believed and was baptized, he very well may not have ever seen Philip again. The result of Philip's obedience, however, was the first recorded African Christian. Equipped, a man who went on his way rejoicing, equipped and eager to share of his own life-changing transformation and his encounter with Jesus. And in this, in this uh, story, Philip had a very specific role to play. In this specific story, he gets the opportunity to see Horatio come to Christ. 
But the work of talking about Jesus and being obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit doesn't always end in the person we're talking to immediately choosing to follow Jesus. So the, Philip's obedience, then, is not important because of the result. It's important simply because it was obedience. Think of it this way. At any given moment on a, at a match, a soccer team has 11 players on the field. If the team is managed well, these players will be aware of the specific but overlapping roles they each have to play. But they will also all be aware that they have a very specific and individual role to play. A centre-back style of play is quite different than that of an attacking striker, based almost, almost entirely on where they are on the field. Some players get to put the ball in the back of the net. Others get to set up plays from the midfield. But, and others continue the less glamorous but hugely important role of defence and clearing the balls upfield. And while the strikers may have statistics that suggest that their role is somehow more important, each player and each role is equally important and absolutely necessary. And the end result is less about the individual players than it is about the whole of the team. This story is not primarily about Philip. It's not about him getting to go away saying that he led this Ethiopian to Christ. Nor is this story primarily about Horatio or the result of him believing and being baptized, even though that is an incredible part of it. This story is about the way that the Holy Spirit leads and prepares and brings to completion the work of salvation. And just as God used Philip's obedience, we too get to be a part of God's work. When we are obedient to his promptings, the Lord can use us. At whatever stage or whatever situation, someone is seeking the truth about who God is. This passage gives us a glimpse into how far God will go to capture the hearts of those who do not yet know him. That there is no nation or tribe or group outside the scope of his love or the reach of the gospel. That the love of Christ is inclusive to all ethnicities and there is no socioeconomic barriers to the reach of his grace. That all, and that really means all, are loved by God and pursued by God. The story shows us that when the Holy Spirit is at work, evangelism organically becomes mission, and that the work of both is less about taking God somewhere he is not, but more about going where he leads and pointing out where he is already at work. To separate the idea of missions, as we typically understand it, the taking of the gospel to the nations, from the work of evangelism is to compartmentalize the way that God works. It limits both the scale and the focus of how we talk about him. Because God telling us to go could be him directing our steps across the globe. But it could also be that the chariot we chase is to ask our friends if we can tell them about Jesus. Sometimes going means simply being receptive to the moments as they come and choosing to listen to the leading of the Spirit over our own schedules. In my second year of university, I lived with two good friends of mine, and the three of us shared a tiny university living space with a bedroom only large enough to fit a bunk bed and a twin bed if they were scrunched up together. And even then, we could barely open the door. The kitchen, if one can even call it that, was miniature, which sounds cute unless you're trying to cook anything more than one pot traditional university fare. 
And the main room, when lined with three desks along the wall, gave us, uh, let's call it, minimal, flexible living space. Needless to say, we grew quite accustomed to the idea that personal living space was a relative concept. And we quickly adapted to the rhythms of our own schedules so as to carve out time where we could each be alone, or at least I did. My main contribution to this system was the fact that I am a morning person. I went to sleep hours earlier than my roommates so I could wake up super early to have time alone in the apartment. And so, as I did nearly every evening, on one particular evening, I headed to bed while my roommates settled into their routine of late night homework. The only problem is, I couldn't sleep. I had a reoccurring thought that one of my roommates needed to talk. So I made a mental note to talk to her the next day and find out why, and I turned over and I tried to fall back asleep. But it didn't work. I tried to pray, and all I could hear was God saying, go talk to her. So I did. I crawled out of bed, and I took the six steps I needed to be obedient. And the simple question of asking if she was okay led to a four-hour back-and-forth conversation that resulted in her making a decision to follow Jesus. My other roommate and I had been praying for God to bring about this decision for a really long time, and I nearly missed the moment she was receptive to the love of Jesus because I was too concerned about my own schedule and my own sleep. Now, I don't know what would have happened had I chosen to sleep that night instead of talking to her. I'm confident that God would have continued to work in her life and that she still would have made the decision to follow Jesus. But I also know that by being obedient, I got to be a part of what was and still is one of the most beautiful moments I have ever experienced and a moment that made me fall in love with Jesus all over again, a moment that reaffirmed the truth that he is in the midst of our stories that he is at work in us and he is always working to turn hearts towards him. And it was a moment that showed me that sometimes the how of how we talk about Jesus is simply that we let the opportunities that God provides take priority. Now, if you, like the Ethiopian, are curious about Jesus but don't have the answer to the questions that you have, please follow his example and be willing to seek out someone who can sit with you and answer your questions. There's humility and bravery involved with admitting that you have questions, but we want you to know that we have all been there. Regardless of where we are with Jesus today, we've all had questions. We still have questions. But the Ethiopian's humility in admitting that he needed a teacher led to the greatest discovery of his life. And part of the reason we're running the Alpha course is because it provides a safe place to explore these questions about God and life and faith. If it helps, you can think of Alpha as your modern-day urban chariot, a safe place to ask the questions. For those of us who follow Jesus, though, we need to follow the example of Philip. Are you seeking God so that when he speaks, you'll hear his voice? Are you running at his leading to come alongside the seekers that he brings along your path? Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit interrupt your schedule and your plans? For us, Alpha provides a safe place to invite our friends who don't yet know Jesus, a place where we can explore what it means to find freedom in our words and steps as we pursue Jesus together. But for that place to even exist, Philip had to listen to God and run after a chariot. 
Obedience required action. But the good news, the really encouraging part in all of this is that for us, the pressure is off. The Holy Spirit is the one that leads us to those who need to know who God is. The Holy Spirit is the one who prepares hearts to hear about Jesus. We need only seek his voice in prayer and worship and in scripture. And when he leads us to opportunities to simply open our mouths to tell of the good news of Jesus, we can respond in obedience and freedom.